by God's grace this evening, I'd like to be able to say we'll finish this chapter tonight. Um, but as Brother Richard said, we're going to let the Lord deal with the time. Uh, there'd be a lot of things worse in life than be taken whenever he comes back while we're studying the book of Revelation, right? So we're going to just take it as God gives it. We're in chapter number one and verse number four. We did the introduction last week and uh, we did some, made some statements that we'll repeat later maybe and then uh, throughout the study uh, mention some more in context with that. But we find the salutation here beginning in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Uh, Let me just stop there a moment because uh, we're about to get a triune uh, welcoming to the study, you might say. uh, From God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. But notice here it says to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now the way we understand that word Asia today is the continent of Asia. Uh, That's not what it's speaking of here. Uh, This is the area, uh, if you get in mind, the area of Turkey. That's about where this is. And this is an area where Paul had done quite a bit of ministry. In fact, we know his Longest stay in any one church was at Ephesus. And this is, of course, the chief city here of these seven churches. It's the one that John, uh, John the Apostle here, was a pastor uh, of the church in Ephesus. Now, uh, Paul was there back in the uh, 50s, 60s, and uh, now this is in the 90s. So it's about 40 years uh, since uh, Paul was there. I'm going to try to get this thing set to where I can get some back support. Now it says, notice, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. That's God the Father. That's God the Father. Remember the book of Revelation was God's book given to Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not John, but of Christ. And it's God the Father speaking here uh, to us. And he's telling us that he gives grace unto you and peace uh, from which is, from uh, him which is, which was and which is to come. The eternal God, in other words. And... And, it says, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, those seven spirits may confuse you a little bit because it's not seven spirits, but it's the seven ministry, sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to God the Holy Spirit is what this is speaking of here. All right, let's go on. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the first, uh, a faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto, the love, uh, unto him that loved us and, watch, uh, and washed us from our sins in his blood. 
and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a much longer statement, but the book is about Jesus Christ. The, the book of Revelation is about Christ. It's, he's the subject and he's throughout the book. And you have to keep that in mind as you're uh, reading and studying this book. Now he gives a, a greeting here. And he, he says that it's from him who is the faithful witness. Uh, he, uh, you know, there's a lot of witnesses, but there's only one witness like Christ, the faithful witness. A lot of men will let you down in their witness and have uh, through the years. But he's the faithful witness and he's the first begotten uh, of the dead. That's not a geological or a, a, a chronological uh, reference here. It's not that he was the first one ever raised from the dead. We know that's not true. Uh, that's not what it's saying here. He's the first begotten of the dead in the sense that he's the first one that uh, died a perfect uh, life sacrificed himself willingly upon the cross and then rose from the dead, never to die again. Uh, those who were raised uh, by the different uh, people in the uh, scriptures, and Jesus, of course, raising Lazarus and others that were raised, they died again, but Jesus never dies again. He is life for eternal. So he is the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Uh, this, of course, we read a lot about in Scripture, about him being the king of kings and, and the uh, uh, ruler of eternity. Uh, that's, his, that's his position. That will be his position during the millennium. Uh, he'll reestablish the throne of David here uh, upon the earth and reign from that throne uh, there in Jerusalem. Now unto him that loved us, and that's, that's in the past tense, but it's, it's understood to be a continuing love. It's not that he loved us in the past and doesn't love us now, for we know that he loves us uh, with, with a love that only God can have. Uh, John 3.16, of course, we always refer to as the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, but the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's no love like the love of God. And, and he loved us and died for us. He, he sacrificed himself on Calvary for our sins. And he loves us still. In fact, it says there, and I think it's in Romans uh, chapter uh, 5, maybe t verse 10 or so. How, did, how much more he loves us now that we are his children. God commanded his love to us, towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans 5, 8, that he died for us while we were, we were sinners, while we were his enemies. Now, how much more he loves us? So when it says here that he loved us, I don't take that for past tense. It's an eternal love that is speaking of here. Uh, and uh, let's go on here. It says, um, I lost my place. I've forgotten from the dead prince of priests. I loved us. Okay. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. And of course, we realize that. Uh, 
There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But it's not the blood of animals that takes away sins. Hebrew tells us clearly that it's only through the blood of Christ. That's why when John the Baptist pointed him out there on the banks of the Jordan that day uh, at his baptism, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The Old Testament sacrifices, the, the blood of these sacrifices only covered the sin. But it's the blood of Christ that took it away. It washed us uh, from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Uh, amen. Uh, and we are going to reign with him. As we study the book of Revelation, you'll see. And by the way, as far as the book of Revelation, we're going to get to verse 19 eventually this morning, uh, this evening, and we're going to see that uh, the outline to the book is very simple. It's three-part outline. He used to tell preachers, you know, you have three points in a poem and that's it. You don't need more than that to preach a sermon. And uh, uh, we have three uh, as the uh, points here. He says, Behold, he cometh with clouds there in verse number seven. We recall that in Acts chapter one, at his final ascension, and why do I say final ascension? Because he ascended and descended many times during the 40-year post-resurrection ministry. After Christ rose from the dead, he had a ministry of 40 days uh, here on earth. And during that time, he went back and forth to heaven. But his final ascension, his final going into heaven in Acts chapter 1 is recorded, and it says that he was taken up in a cloud. Now it says in the same manner, uh, he cometh with clouds. And this cloud, by the way, is uh, this cloud is like the Shekinah glory cloud of the Old Testament. The one that the uh, Israelites followed during the day uh, when they were traveling during the 40 years of wandering. Uh, they followed the cloud by day and the fire by night. And it was a token of the presence of God. And it says here also in verse number 7 that every eye shall see him. Now that's different, isn't it? Every eye shall see him. Now, you know, we don't understand how some of these things will happen. But this is God's word. This is God's teaching. This is not our limits. Uh, I can remember when I first started in ministry, they didn't have... Uh, satellite TV and they didn't have a global connection where you can actually watch something here that's happening across the world somewhere in another country as it's happening uh, because the later technology and when it says about the two witnesses being killed and laying in the streets of Jerusalem three and a half days uh, and all the world would see them and we couldn't understand you know back in my early days well, we had to just accept that by faith. But now it's very simple to understand how that could be. Uh, and uh, we know that it's a, it's a fact, uh, as the Bible says, that every eye shall see him. And, and it says, and they also which pierced him. That's talking about the Jewish people. 
It wasn't the Jews that nailed him to the cross. It was you and I. It's our sins that put him there and held him there. Uh, but the, the Jews were instrumental in persecuting and having him prosecuted by the Roman authorities and, and uh, crucified. And they were the one who pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. Uh, this is a uh, time referring to here at the climax of all time. This is the, well, I shouldn't say all time, of the time of the Gentiles, okay? Uh, you say the times of the Gentiles. Let me explain that clearly so you understand. You'll hear people talk about that often, the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles began 606 B.C., when Israel became captive in Babylon and they've never been in control of themselves since then for any long period of time. Little spots here and there. But they are under the rule of the Gentiles. They live in a Gentile world. And it's so today. We live today in a Gentile world. But at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, that's going to end the time of the Gentiles. And then the Jew, again, will be back in leadership. And, of course, they'll reign all, uh, over all the nations during this time. Verse 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega. Uh, he repeats this several times. In fact, down in verse 11, we see it again. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. These two words, Alpha and Omega... Uh, are, are uh, descriptive of the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet, the writing. Well, we have 26 uh, characters. Uh, they had, I think, uh, maybe 24, I don't remember just what, but they had a first and last. But here's the thought here. Notice, I am Alpha and Omega. First, I am. That's a verb uh, that has a, 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 um, a being without a beginning, is what it is. He has no beginning. And it says in the Bible, in the beginning, God. When time began, God was already there. I always uh, like to picture it this way. When I was teaching the students, we had a blackboard, and I'd take a blackboard, and I'd, I'd draw a, a circle here. I'll use this box to represent time. Time past, time present, time future, time. But all time is in God. God is not in time in the sense that he's contained within time. And, and it's good for us to understand that when he says... I am, he's talking about that. He's talking about, he's the God that all the words that you could ever spell could never fully describe his, his, uh, his aptitude and his abilities and his strength and his wisdom. He's beyond finding out for you and I. So he's introducing himself. He said, I am the Omega. Uh, excuse me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. Now notice, 
the Almighty. That's very powerful, that title, the Almighty. You find that title in the Old Testament, I think maybe 40 times or so. You'll find it but a few times here in Revelation. But let me tell you the meaning of that word almighty. It's first used when God spoke to Abraham, recorded back in Genesis chapter number number 17. And in there he's he's speaking to uh, Abraham, and this is the second time back in chapter 12, uh, he gave the unconditional covenant with uh, Abraham which he would be the father of many nations. The Jewish nation, but all nations will be blessed through him. And his seed would be as the stars in heaven, as the sand on the sea. You remember reading that. In chapter 17, he reaffirms that, and he uses this title, Almighty. The word means all-sufficient one. All-sufficient one. And in the context when he first gave it to Abraham there, you think about it. Abraham, a, a man over 90 years of age, and, 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 and uh, Sarah right at 90 years of age. It had been 10 years or so in between their ages, but uh, seniors by far. Been promised to be the father of all these nations, and he wasn't even a father. And I mean, he he would wonder. He would had he'd had concern. How can this be? And God said, "Don't worry. I am the Almighty. I am the All Sufficient One." As as we look here at Revelation, you keep, remember that He is God. He is the I Am. He is the Almighty. He is the All Sufficient One who can take care of every need that would ever arise, any problem that ever comes by. That's why we should not worry and fret. We should put our trust in God, and we, as we get older, we learn to do it more effectively. We're not 100% on our obedience in anything. No one is. But as age goes by, we do learn a little bit more to depend upon God. We've seen him work so many times in wondrous ways that we cannot explain. And so we ought to, I believe in the wind blew my page. Okay, now verse number nine. We see the voice in the, in the vision here. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation... And in the kingdom of the patience of Jesus Christ was in the isles that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this a little closer. I, John, whom also am your brother and companion. Don't think that John or any of these Bible characters we read about are some supernatural person. They're just flesh and blood. And he he reminds the folks here, he says, I am your companion in tribulation. 
John knew a little bit about tribulation. I mean, you, you read the stories about his life and, and though he was the only uh, one of the disciples to die a natural death, uh, he didn't die an easy, uh, live, I should say, an easy life. Uh, they say he was boiled in oil. That's, that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Uh, and uh, here he is. It tells us he's on this hour of Patmos. And, and uh, that was a form of suffering. That was a, a penal uh, institution. Uh, Rome had that. It's out in the Aegean Sea, just about maybe 30 miles from the shore uh, of the mainland. And it's, it's a, maybe 30 or 40 islands out there. But this one uh, here that he was on, Patmos, we know uh, it's... Uh, geographical location they know about it uh, it's about 10 mile long six mile wide it's a barren piece of rock and it was uh, used for a penal institution for punishment and the and john was there for his punishment now why was he what did he do rob a bank or something no look what it says he was on the uh, in the isles that is called patmos for here it is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing he did wrong was he stood for God. You know, I've lived several years. My brother over here is my senior, so I can't say I'm the oldest man here. And I'm glad you're here, Roger. And it's not Roger Johnson, although he is my older brother. <laughs> but he's not as old as the other Roger. But, any, but anyhow, he, he's, he's here on this isle of Patmos, a penal institution suffering for his testimony. We're living in times today, uh, I can't believe in my lifetime, no, it's not over yet, folks, uh, during the years, let's say it this way, during the years that I've lived, I've seen some changes that when I try to th think about what may be another even five years, it scares me. Our country is in some very serious situation. Christians today are persecuted, not to the extent or to, to the, uh, in, in the uh, severity that John was per persecuted, but Christians are persecuted today, and even more so. You see this uh, demonic actions of people today and the hatred. When would you have thought that homosexuality would be accepted in the law? I remember, and I was not a kid, I was a, a young man, and homosexuality was a, an illegal act that you could go to jail for. That's the attitude of the world I was raised in. But now, and it's forced down your throat into where you are the, you are the victim. You're the one who's a nut from the world's standpoint uh, point of view. Look what they're doing to the children of our age. Look to, the, look to what they're doing today. I can't be 7 o'clock already. 
Is that when we're supposed to stop at 7? 7.30. Pardon? 7.30. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were giving me a sign. I've learned after 66 years to pay attention to that lady. And you pray for me for next week. You think I'm having trouble tonight. Next week, I'll have two of those redheads living in me with me. For her big sister, she's 91 and she thinks she's 19. And she won't let you tell her any difference either. You'll, you'll see next week. Uh, but you pray for me. Uh, 7.30. Well, no, I, I, like the, I like the whole truth of the uh, clock. And by that time, I'll probably be passed out here on the floor anyhow. Okay. Now, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, we know what day that is. The Lord's day is Sunday, the first day of the week. The early church letters, the earliest letters we have of the, the people in the church communicating back in the early days of Christianity, they referred to Sunday often as the first day of the week. We, we, we worship on that day because it was the day of the resurrection. And so he says here, John says, Back at, in Patmos, or actually, uh, there's some, uh, I clear this up right now, there's some teachings that John was released uh, from the prison island. I, I had the name written down, I won't worry about it, it's not, not important. But he was released and went back to the mainland about 96 or 97 A.D., that's when this book was written. So some folks uh, are of the opinion that John wrote this, this vision and, and instructions and the writing here came. He was but the penman for God with this. But God used him to record this book after he returned back to the homeland. Uh, we don't know for sure, and I, I wouldn't say for sure either way, but uh, there are a lot of people that uh, believe that. And uh, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. This thing was sh- uh, sh- uh, uh, shocking. He, sh- he was startled. He, he heard this voice and, 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 the, and it's saying, I am, there it is again, I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last. And what, uh, and what uh, thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which were in Asia. And now he actually gives us the name of the churches. Notice, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea, the seven churches. If you look on the map, a biblical map at that time in this area of Turkey, you'd see that it begins and makes kind of like a circle, starting from Ephesus and going north about 40 mile and some 30, 40, 50, 50 mile apart, each one spaced. They were located on a major highway. And uh, they were all major communities 
and the Roman government controlled this area, Ephesus being the headquarters. Ephesus, of course, is also the, the place of the, uh, uh, the, the, the um, false god Diana, uh, the, uh, that time one of the great wonders of the world, uh, was located there. And uh, it was a, a very prosperous, very powerful city. And I said, this is where John uh, himself uh, uh, resided and, and ministered. And he, he, he gives these cities. Now, there are seven of these cities, and he names them. Now, some people would say, well, there were only seven Christian churches up there. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And when we study in chapters 2 and 3, when we study these seven churches, uh, we're going to notice that the uh, churches have characteristics about them that are very revealing. And it gives us a, a, a dates that we can actually trace the history of Christendom from the time of Christ, some say from the time of Pentecost. I don't believe the church started at Pentecost. Now, that was the day to the time when the Holy Spirit came, I know that. But now I, I say, why, I, why don't I believe that? Because they were already assembled in the upper room, one thing, 120 in the upper room on that day. Uh, and so they were already having meetings. And Christ himself said he set in the church first the apostles. And so that's, I believe... Uh, the, is the time when the church started with the ministry of Christ. He gave to them discipline. And in uh, chapter uh, 16 of Matthew, he gave them a commission in Matthew chapter 28. These things happened before Pentecost. And so uh, this, uh, this is speaking of, this history is from the time of Christ until the rapture. Now, we're still in that time, if you didn't know it. Uh, the rapture hasn't taken place, believe me. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be here. When that, when that happens, I'm going. You can stay if you want, but I, I'm not going to stay. Uh, I'm leaving. And, he, and so he, he gives the name of this, and he says, I turned to see the voice that spake to, uh, with me, he heard this trumpet, and then he hears these uh, words, and he, he given these city names, and so he turns to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. What's that talking about? Well, these candlesticks are, are like what we would say lanterns or lights, uh, the, the candlesticks referred to here in that day and time was a, a vessel which had a light within it to, to, to be bore around to give illumination. And so he sees these seven candlesticks. They're, they're significant. And by the way, the word seven, we've already seen it come up several times uh, here in this first chapter. And we'll see it again in, in the future time. There's seven churches, seven, seven, seven. It, it, we, we see it often because it's a number of uh, meaning completion or perfection. 
Now, keep that in mind. He sees the candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. Now, notice, he's going to give, him a, give us a description. This here description is, as I believe, the best, and many others believe, it's the best description of Christ given anywhere in the Bible. Now, we have descriptive writings about him in other places, uh, about who he is and what he is. But now notice the description here. He sees this son of man clothed with a garment down to to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. This, This person, which is Christ, here, the son of, man, son of Man is described in a, a, a robe. You ever wonder where, in, to, even in today, in the courts, the judge wears a robe, right? Here, it pictures Christ in this robe-like garment from top to bottom. And, and uh, that's what he's here as, a judge. You know, when he came the first time, he came as the lamb. And he came uh, with, with a very um, uh, soft, persuasive uh, appeal. And uh, he, he was uh, the one who wept at Lazarus' resurrection and wept over the city of Jerusalem. He was a, a, a one who had strong affections and, and uh, you can get that picture out of your mind now because you're going to see described before you and as this description goes on there's, there's uh, oh, seven I think seven descriptions are given here and, and every one of them would not make you think of a lamb. This now is the judge. Notice how he's, he, he continues. In verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And I got to studying on that. You know, it's not the color white that it's referring to here. It's, it's like the glory of God. Uh, well, like the Transfiguration, John 17, where he, par- just in a partial uh, matter, uh, uh, they were the, the, the inner three, you know, Peter, James, and John were there and saw it, and, and it not blinded them. That light that Paul saw on his road, to, you know, his trip to Damascus, it's that kind of a, a, a description that he's given here. A light, a great light. And his head, his hair wears white, okay, as snow. Now notice this, his eyes. He's given a very clear description. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That's reminding us of the omniscient God that he is. These penetrating, these laser-like eyes that look into the hearts of people and know the thoughts and the intents of that heart. These eyes that nothing can be concealed. 
uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 13, I believe it is, says that all things are naked before him. When he comes as a judge, he'll know it all. He'll see it all. There's no hiding. He's coming to judge, and he's coming with eyes that are like fire. Now it goes on and says in verse 15 that his feet are likened to fine brass as it were burned in a furnace. Brass is, is a, a metal in scripture. It's a symbol of judgment. And being burnt in a furnace means it's hot. It's, it's blazing hot. These same feet that walked through Galilee preaching the gospel that walked 60 miles down to the Jordan to have John baptize him. These same feet that the disciples followed as he taught and instructed them. Now these feet are coming in judgment. And they're coming with fierce judgment. His voice, now notice it's talked about his head, his, his uh, eyes, his, his feet. And now it's his voice, and it says here that uh, here beyond here, his voice as the sound of many waters. That's a powerful force. Speaking of power, uh, John, at, you know, either at this time or shortly before this time, he was on that hour of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. And, and I can imagine he could hear those waves crashing against the rock on the shore. Like the white cliffs of Clover or Gover or wherever it is in England. That, 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 that waves slapping, slapping. Waters, a sound of many waters. You know, I lived in Florida for 21 years and I learned that in a hurricane they have terrible winds that do a lot of destruction. But you know, the thing that takes the most lives and does the most destruction is the water. The water that destroys it. These were mighty waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. Now let me just pick that apart closely because there's a lot in here. And he had in his right hand seven stars. We're going to read some more about these a little bit later. In fact, in the ending verses of his chapter. There's different interpretation of what these stars are. Let me let me give you my uh, my my understanding of what these is, and that is that these are the pastors. You know, you better watch putting your hand on God's elect. God gives each church one pastor. Anybody else takes that title is doing it incorrectly. One pastor. 
He's the under-shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. He's the head. The pastor is the under-shepherd. You say, well, some pastors aren't very good shepherds. They ain't good. God will take care of them. Some governments aren't too good either, but God tells us to obey our government and support our people in office. God will take care of them. But there's not that many of them, believe me. I've been around a long time, and I've seen more good pastors than I've ever seen bad. And, and I have seen some bad ones, but uh, that's, that's an, a horse of another color. But here, he's talking here about these stars. He, he, uh, let's see, let's go back, verse 16. In his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the beginning, God spoke. He didn't have to make the earth. He spoke things into existence. Man, he formed but other things he spoke. Man alone was made in the image of God, but others he just spoke. And, and you remember this, when he comes back again, he, this two-edged sword is the word of God, and that's all it's going to take to take care of all the judgment that he's about to do. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. His, his description here, it shows him as so bright and so powerful. He's likened unto the sun in its strength. He's, he's more powerful than the sun. He made the sun. People worry today about uh, evolution and things like that. They just need to read the Bible. You know, uh, most people don't read the book of Revelation so they don't know very much about it. Nor do many people read the book of Genesis and they don't know much about the book of Genesis either. And Genesis, the first 11 chapters, if you can get that straight, uh, it'll take care now, if I fall down, one of you younger guys pick me up. I never have trouble like this. I'm falling apart up here. But but I know this. That's just a marker, but I'll probably need that someday. I'll put it right back in there. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And good to have you with us tonight. You told me you were going to come and... You're a man of your word. You're here. Amen. Okay. So his, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, in verse 17, I fell at his feet as dead. That's often the uh, way people respond when they get in the presence of God. And he, he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth. 
Notice three times I am is mentioned in these next uh, this next two verses. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth. And again in this verse, I am alive and forevermore. He is God. Don't be afraid. He's here. He, he's got you by his hand. And he's going to hold on to you. You know, um, I used to use the illustration. People say, well, I say, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm just holding on. Well, you better do better than that. You know what happens when you hold on? You hit some ice, down you go. He holds you. Amen. Don't have to worry about holding on. He holds you. Yes, sir. Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters, that causes all the trouble. You just emphasize three ayahs. And if you go to Genesis and he says to Moses, go free my people, he says, who should I say sent me? He said, I am. That's right. I am. That's, that's the all completeness. I am. He's, he's forever. He's always, he, it, it is a, again, a verb without a beginning. Actually, he, he has no beginning. Amen. Don't try to put God in a... In a I'm reading a book. Uh, I, uh, Larkin's his name. I, I love his church. His theology. He spends about that much of the book, or not really about that much of the book, talking about how the pre-existence of people before Adam and Eve. Uh, I... I have problem with a gap theory and that. I have problem with all that. Okay. But he does have great charts. And uh, that's like myself or any other teacher. Uh, he's not perfect. And uh, of all the books I've ever read, there's not a one other than the Bible that I can say I have full faith in that. And every one that I've ever read, in one place or another, uh, they disagree with me, and that doesn't make it wrong, but it makes me wonder. <laughs> he says, "He says I, I, I am it, 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 three times here." Now, here's the important verse. The verse, the next verse, is the key to understanding Revelation. That's important, isn't it? Verse 19, he gives us the outline. Listen to it. Write the things which thou hast seen. Hast seen. That's past tense. That's chapter 1. That's the chapter we're in right now. And the things which are. That's future. Or excuse me, that's presence. That's chapters 2 and 3. That's the churches. And I said there's seven churches for a reason because I believe these seven churches depict the, the uh, spirituality or the spiritual condition of the church age in which it represents. And it starts at, in the early church. 
in the time of John. And then it completes, and then another section, and then another section. We're going to handle, I don't want to get too far ahead, we're going to handle that. But these are the things that are, and I say we, now listen, we are in that period of the book of Revelation. We that are. We here today, people speak about living in the Laodicean age. Well, you know from the list that we read, that was the last of the churches. That's the seventh church. And they're given in a chronological order there for, for as far as depicting a time. And the Laodicean age, it describes that church. And we know that's a very apt, uh, clear, uh, clear uh, defini- uh, description of our age today. Lukewarm. People that literally make God sick. Those are Christians, so-called Christians today. He said, I'd rather have you cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. I just spew you. That word means vomit. I preached a sermon one time. And the preacher was shocked when I titled the sermon, People That Make God Sick. That's a good Sunday night message, but it wouldn't do good on Sunday morning. But but um, anyhow, he says the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, now here's the final section, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's future. Dividing the book of Revelation, the things which thou hast seen, that's the uh, first chapter, then which are, the second and third, third chapter that we're going to study next, and then, beginning in chapter 4 and to the end of the book, these things which are hereafter. These areas are very distinct. You can't use this description and say, oh, that's like us. No, that's not like you if it's over there. Now, it may be some similar characteristics, but uh, you have to keep it in the proper section is what I'm saying. And it's so important when you study Revelation. People get confused because they try to take this and take this and take that. And they don't understand the order in which God gave it to us. And he give us a promise of a blessing if we'll read and study it. And he gives us the outline from which to study. And it's any outline that any child could understand. It's not a hard book to understand. It's just that people make it hard. Now, notice the closing verse. The, the ministry, let me see here how I'm doing. Oh, just barely. The, the, the mystery of the seven stars, here I said we'd talk about it again, which thou, thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Now, the seven stars, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now you say, oh, that's see, You said they were pastors and they said they were angels. The word angel does not always mean, it often does, most, most generally does, mean a supernatural spiritual being. Okay? But angel is not, does not mean just that. The word angel means messenger, servant, 
makes a difference. And when you see here where it says that the, the stars are, are the angels of the seven churches, and now tied with this, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Each one of these churches, each one of these periods of church history are going to have a torch, a light. Christ is the light. We are but the vessels that bear the light. We, he is the light of the world, not you or I. We can share that light. We can expose that light, but we're not that light. But he is the light. He gives that torch to the churches. And they better be careful because he can take it away. And that becomes a church that the name changes from First Baptist Church to Ichabod Church. Ichabod, you remember, it means the glory of God has departed. And a lot of churches, they might have closed their doors. And particularly today, you see that today. We have churches that have no problems with this change that you see going on uh, in our daily life. But these churches are represented by these candlesticks and the stars. You know, the world has its stars, doesn't it? I mean, in sports, you have stars. Hollywood has their stars. You know, Daniel chapter 12 talks about God's stars, as stars. These who turn many to righteousness will be as the stars that's going to shine forever and ever. Stars for Christ. Next week, by God's grace, we're going to get into our day. This was what John had received, this, this vision, this descriptive vision of Christ characteristics about Christ. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Christ, all mentioned here. But now, in chapters 2 and 3, we get down to the churches. You know, a lot of people don't understand it's seven churches And when he writes it, he writes it to the church at Ephesus. You don't find any book written to the church. Because there is no such thing. The meaning of the word church, had one professor told me that the word church is like an old Mother Hubbard cabinet. It, It will hold anything. But because people don't understand, they have all kinds of ideas of a church. Some people think this building is a church. And they call it the church house. And so, all right, forget that. But anyhow, we have churches. The, The church means a called out assembly. A called out assembly. 
Now, in future, there's a couple of places in Scripture it talks about the church in glory. And we know the, the understand we have an understanding in Revelation 19 we'll say that the church becomes the bride of Christ, the church. Not the churches, but the church. When's it become a church? At the rapture. At the rapture is the only time when every born-again, blood-bought child of God will be assembled. If you could get everybody in the world today assembled, you couldn't have the church. What about the ones that are dead? But at the rapture, the dead in Christ shall rise first because they, they have six feet more to go. So they, they're not going to get there before us because then we're going to be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's a called out assembly. That's the bride of Christ. So when we talk about the seven churches, you remember they're local, independent churches. And they were little churches. I don't believe they were the only churches. I believe they were seven that represented what God wanted us to see and know. And by God's grace, we'll show that uh, in the next week. I'm sorry, I, I know I ran over four minutes. And I, I, I apologize for that, but I can't always say I'll do any better. <laughs> I'm not used to teaching at night. When I taught at college, I taught in the morning. Sometimes I've had three and four hour long, sometimes with an hour break, but lecturing. It's the only other time I ever used a stool. I never taught before this lesson, last week in the night, without a suit and tie. I don't know. We live in a different age. I've always complained about the ties, so I'm not going to be hypocritical about it. And I'm kind of happy to see that the tie is beginning to see the end of its days. You look around at public people today, politicians included, business people, they do they wear jackets, but you don't see the tie. It doesn't make me a bit mad, but but I I have seen some change in my life. I, I never spoke in a church from down here. I always spoke up there. You know, I was, I, I, I know I'm on your time now, so if you've got to go, go ahead. But, but I, I, I always believe this. Now, this sounds funny, I know. But I preached and taught the Word of God from up here. I believe this is the area God gave the preacher. I promise not to come down there, and I hope you'll promise not to come up here. When a a person is called of God, and given a church like our pastor has this church in his care, and he must give an account to God for his ministry to this church, but he doesn't give it to you. And there's only one pastor. You don't know the heartache and the trials and the testings that a pastor goes through. This brother has pastored 
I've pastored. And I tell you what, I, I, I tell young preachers, like the preacher told me, I told him I, was, I felt like the Lord called me to preach. He said, well, if you can do anything else, do it. They say, well, that's pretty bad advice. No, it's not really. Because if God called you, you're going to do it. But if you're getting in it for your reason or thinking you're such a blessing or whatever, just forget it. Don't waste people's time and don't waste your time. And so that's how I feel. So I feel a little strange sitting down there, but and I don't have a tie and a coat. Thank the Lord, it's supposed to hit a hundred next week. I, I don't want I don't want to have a tie and a shirt on, but I, but customs change. I'm not I'm not saying that it has to be. I'm just saying no. I'm just saying that's the way I've always been taught, and I, and I've so you have to understand why I feel a little, a little out of place because I am out of place. <laughs> I've been doing this 50 years, and uh, you see the changes in this world. Changes in this world. I mean, you couldn't, you that are here that are over, say, 40 years of age, you can't remember when you ever seen churches where the preacher didn't preach up there and wear a suit and tie. Now, if you were going to the White House to see, I don't know what you want to do it for, but if if you were going to the White House to see the president, I know you do your best to look your best. And when you come to the house of God, that's how you ought to feel. That's the way, that's just the way I've always been taught. And um, excuse me for my rambling on. I, I do better if I just stick with the book. <laughs> Next week, study uh, chapters 2 and 3. And we won't, I hope to cover a whole chapter. Now, I don't know. The last time I taught this was at a church across town here. I did it Sunday morning. I had a little more energy, but it took us, what, rather a year? About a year to get through the book of Revelation. But I... I follow our Sunday school teachers' advice. They're going to hurry. God says stop. I hope I have enough sense to stop. And so, God bless you.